unknown vessel. This is Waylon Utani Anchor Point Station. Please respond. Troop transport Sulaco. Return. New? The kid bit me! Don't touch me! Oh, don't touch her! Bishop. Hicks. Weapons Division intends to develop the alien. <laughs> Audible Studios present Alien 3 by William Gibson, starring Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen. Stay frosty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardwar. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show, everyone. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be discussing what we've been watching, um, and then moving on into a review of Shane Black's newest film, The Predator. Uh, but before we do that, a couple things we want to mention. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, the Summer Movie Wager happened last week, our, our follow-up episode. And there was uh, – I, I wanted to ask you guys actually before the show, but now I'm asking you live on the air, whether <laughs> there's anything else you wanted to mention uh, that we didn't get to last week. Because there was one thing I thought of uh, that I wanted to mention, uh, which is What's that, that uh, I actually thought uh, Warner Brothers had a pretty amazing summer. Uh, and I, I wanted to just give them a shout out because this is the studio that opened Crazy Rich Asians and The Meg on back to back weekends, and both of those mm-hmm. turned out to be huge hits. Uh, and also, like not not based off an existing franchise of films. In, instead, those movies probably created new franchises, right? So uh, I just thought Warner Brothers had a had a great summer and uh, wanted to call them out as like one of the big success stories of the year also i think they did the nun as well which is a massive success Mm. so they're just having like a pretty gangbusters last uh you know month or two and uh i think like my guess not 100 percent sure my guess is uh the consequences of of their victory will be felt for years to come in terms of what other movies might might spawn from the conjuring universe or crazy rich asian sequel or, or things like that so just wanted to mention that I think uh, the effects of your victory will be felt for years to come. Uh, <laughs> trust me, um, <laughs> my, my the the effects of my victory will also be felt for sure. Uh, I mean, here's here's the thing, Jeff. Here's here's the thing that I'm ashamed of is that uh, I have only equaled the maximum number of times somebody has won the summer movie wager, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe is you. That's right, at, baby. At three times. I, I know it's hard to believe, but there was a, a moment in time when <laughs> Jeff Kanata was considered good at this game. Um, but but that, those yes, times are long were cons- gone. There were considerably fewer participants then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So, so I am hoping that next year brings the decisive victory that I need to declare myself the greatest summer movie wager player of all time. Uh, and we I'll be, shall see. Yeah, I'll, I'll be looking out for it, and uh, and hope everyone, everyone listening, is also looking forward to it. Coming summer 2019, <laughs> it all happens. Yeah. It, indeed, all- indeed. Uh, also, uh, a couple of other shout. You know, I, I I got so caught up in the the pageantry of the occasion last weekend. 
that there was a, a couple shout-outs that I forgot to give to, to people who had participated and won. Um, there was a, a Slack uh, leaderboard as well, people who participated in the Slack, uh, the Slack Filmcast at uh, slackfilmcast.com. Uh, and the the technical winner of that uh, leaderboard was Justin Lerbakken from Minneapolis, uh, uh, Minnesota. So Justin Lerbakken uh, got the best score out of all that. But here's yeah, here's the thing: that's not just a technical win, Dave. That's an, that's an actual win. That's how winning works. <laughs> oh, okay. That's just uh, a technical. Well, here, here's 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 the thing: is that Justin Lerbakken, even though he signed he signed up for the Slack uh, leaderboard, he he's not actually active in the Slack. Uh, he just signed up, so I w- wanted to give a shout out. But the person in the in the Slack who actually still contributes is uh, Paula Fernandez. I think she's from Brazil. Um, but Paula Fernandez is actually the top scorer in the actual Slack. She actually choose chose a movie that she wants everyone to watch, uh, which is Faces Places. So uh, if you're in the oh, Slack, nice. yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, some good uh, documentaries were chosen by. Uh, I've seen that one already. Yeah, you I, saw that one. I've already. I've already, uh, I've already, you know, participated in the in the loss for that one. <laughs> for the slack. Uh, good job, you you saved yourself thanks. some time there. So yeah. um, anyway, wanted to give a shout out to those folks, and again, thanks to uh, Dennis for making this year's competition possible. Again, you can listen to uh, our conversation about this year's summer at uh, the Slash Filmcast feed. And also thesummermoviewager.com to see all the scores. The movie I chose as a winner for everyone to watch was Minding the Gap. We'll probably review that movie uh, coming up in the next few weeks. It's Minding the Gap. It's on Hulu. Check it out if you want to be ready for our review of the film. So you can always, if you're a listener, email us at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. We got a, a, a few re- uh, emails at slashfilmcast.gmail.com. Uh, I would say these emails have very, 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 very minor spoilers for searching. So if you like are completely spoiler averse, you know, maybe skip uh, forward for a couple minutes. But I, I really don't think it's going to spoil anything. Uh, this email comes in from Justin from Iowa commenting about our searching review. Justin writes in, hey, guys, thanks for the great review of searching. Got me to see the film today. I was wondering if any of you guys noticed side posts and stories about potential aliens. There were notes about increased talks of UFOs, NASA debunking those rumors, and then links about NASA set to make a big announcement from the White House. Uh, I thought the third act was a bit wacky as well, but I was literally scared the movie was going to go (laughs) truly into bananas territory with that being an actual plot point. Just just curious if anyone noticed this weird side plot. So, so searching is a movie starring kind of rad. That would have been kind of rad if like (laughs) if we're we're like who how how did what what happened to the girl? Did she disappear? She drove off. Oh, she was abducted by aliens. It's another red herring (laughs) thing, right? Because it's it's just this thought that's planted in your mind as you're watching the movie. It's like oh, it could be, could be this, could be so many things. Yeah. So so, so to be clear, what he's Summer, right? Like searching is told completely in a computer screen, and uh, I guess throughout the movie, there's an entire subplot in I guess like Chirons or like the ticker, the news ticker, right? Or, or like like in the background of, of the screen, like other news stories about aliens. I did not catch any of this the first time I watched. Oh the man, movie. did you did you see any of it, Devendra? Or yeah, yeah, it was right. so good. It was definitely on my mind. I think that's the key, right? Just this little this little hint of data. It's like, oh, could it be this? It's it's. I think the makings of a good mystery, but I'd also love for a searching Cloverfield universe type thing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I did not catch the aliens in searching, but um, if you uh, haven't seen the film yet and want to check it out and look for that little Easter egg, 
It is there for you. This email comes in from Josh from Toledo, Ohio. Josh writes in, just listened to the review of Searching and was compelled to write in, I was disappointed by your dismissal of the unfriended films. Both entries, particularly the sequel Dark Web, have everything you're looking for in this computer cinema format and were were released well before Searching, yet were tossed aside as less ambitious and given no credit for being groundbreaking. I will say the first unfriended was given a lot of credit. A lot of people like that movie. And I think he's, yeah, he's, yeah. I think Joshua from Toledo, Ohio is talking about us giving it not that much credit. Um, searching lacks the crucial attention to aesthetic detail that makes the style feel so immersive in Unfriended, such as variable video playback quality, loading times, realistic mouse movements, a sound design that takes lag into account, diegetic music, etc. The attempt to bring in some conventional filmmaking techniques like a score and time-lapse edit, time editing is understandable, But the main effect is just distracting. As you all noted, a lot of the acting here is not good enough to sell an increasingly ludicrous script. And the story often falls into the classic found footage problem of making the viewer think, why is this conversation on video right now? All that said, I'm kind of glad most folks seem to like searching. And I hope we get many more filmmakers trying some new things in this promising style. Also, hope you guys give the second unfriended film a chance and avoid falling into the trap of not taking horror films seriously as art. Uh, so that email comes from Joshua from Toledo, Ohio, uh, rebuking us for dismissing the Unfriended films. I, I have seen Unfriended 1. Uh, yeah. I enjoyed that film, but also found it to be uh, – yeah, I mean – It's okay not, for us not to like things. Yeah, I mean it's, 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 not, it's not a rebuke against you liking something. It's I, cool. I, I don't it's think cool. a single actor in Unfriended – the first yeah. one was as good as John Cho in Searching. I just yeah. that's yeah. how I feel about that movie. I do think that Josh from Toledo points out some things that Unfriended did really well. Like mm-hmm. I do think that uh, the screen used in Unfriended is depicted more realistically than the sure. screen in Searching. But and I did hate the mouse movements in, in Searching as well. They I were forget, extremely smooth that. mouse movements. Were they not too too unreal. too smooth? Yeah. Too smooth. Uh, uh, that's how I use my mouse, guys. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, I, what I would like to see as the next step in this style is n- uh, abandon the all or nothing approach. It, why yeah. not have this be a sequence in your movie or a portion of your movie? It, it, it can be both, right? You can have traditional mm-hmm. filmmaking techniques and this yeah. screen – what is it? Screen life is how you Screen life. What we're seeing – I think right now we're seeing that hybridization. Like even uh, – what was that movie – the one with Kristen Stewart, um, Personal Shopper, had some really good uh, moments that were literally just focused on a screen. It was just her texting somebody, and she, we don't know who she, who that person was. Uh, so I think a lot of modern movies are doing that, just maybe not in the same way. Yeah. It's interesting to see how, how so many different properties have figured out how to convey text messaging in yeah. films, you know, because there's, there's a variety of techniques that have been used and text messaging has become such a integral part of the human experience. That yeah. More that, films use that it. Crazy I, rich Asians like montage sequence is incredible. Yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. And that's a, a brand new way of, of visualizing it. And I think it's fun to see how different people use it. And I don't, I don't have a problem with just focusing it on a screen and living on a screen for, you know, five, 10 minutes of your movie. I think that that could totally work. I, I got to disagree with you there, Jeff. I, I think, per Davindra's point, a lot of movies have demonstrated they can seamlessly blend or depict. Actually, let me, let me think. Let me think if I disagree mm-hmm. with you. Because I'm going to talk about American Vandal today on the podcast. And <laughs> I think that movie actually does a great job. Like, it doesn't show you. No, no. Actually, it does. There's many sequences where it's just like a screen and right. you see text pop up. 
So, no, I, I completely just reversed myself. I think you're right, Jeff. It does work. <laughs> but the, the problem is, the, the problem is you can't really. Glad I was lock, persuasive. <laughs> well, the, yeah. The, the problem is you can't, like, lock yourself into a screen for, like, 10 minutes without it feeling inorganic to the storytelling, in my opinion. Yeah. You Unless know, like, you start. It's one thing yeah. if you, like, see a few texts pop up on a screen and, like, see texting back and forth for, like, 30 seconds, you know, or 60 seconds. It's another thing to spend 10 minutes locked on a screen. Like, I just don't think you could have a conventional film. And then, like, spend 10 minutes on computer screen and then, like, oh, we're back in the real world now. It just, that just doesn't mm-hmm. feel like – it doesn't feel like it would Maybe, work. Maybe. But yeah. I, I know I mentioned this in our review of Searching. One of the things I liked most about that movie is that at least for the first two-thirds of it, it, it really felt like the reason we were in the screen is because that's where this person would be to do the things he was doing. Mm. And it makes the most sense to engage in with your computer if you're – trying to figure out where someone is. That's what we all would do. We would sit down on the internet and we would try to figure out some things. And there's plenty of movies where there's a sequence like that. Think of it as a set piece. Like it's a, it's a searching set piece <laughs> where you get on a computer and you try to figure some things out. I think that could work as, as a set piece. I could be wrong, but I think that I wouldn't throw it out just a priori. I, I think yeah, no, that fair it, enough. It fair enough. I think, uh, I, I think you're right though, that, the problem that a lot of these movies have, found footage movies, ser- movies like Searching and Unfriended, is at some point you start questioning, like, why are we still on this computer screen? Like, this act- this story could be better told not on the computer screen, right? right. Like, that's what happens usually at what some point. Searching for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, okay, one last email I want to read before we move on to what we've been watching this week. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to Eric Angelillo from Montreal, Quebec. Uh, who wrote us about uh, his indie game company, Double Stallion, and um, uh, about this new game that he's releasing and how he's listened to the podcast to help him like do the new game. And um, uh, you know, n- not, not like we provided him game advice or anything, but that like we uh, kept him company you know, for many crucial aspects of his life. And so I just wanted to give a shout-out to Eric. Um, and also I think he gave us some Steam codes as well. So uh, appreciate that, Eric. And uh, always glad if the podcast can be a part of your life. Wanted to write in, uh, read this email from a person named Speedy Gonzalez in Chicago, not his real name, uh, who what? writes into sliceFilmcast.gmail at gmail.com. First of all, he wants to rebuke Jeff Kanata's unsullied lifestyle. Uh, he writes here about watching tra- trailers, <laughs> quote, Let's just say I'm one of those people who, in eager anticipation of Season 7 of Game of Thrones, actively sought out and read through the entire uh, season plot details leaked online, which turned out to be the actual plot details. My feeling is that the plot details are not really the crux of my enjoyment of the show as much as the actual execution of the details, how it's all rendered through acting, cinematography, music, action, and so on. We all know that for the most part, the good guys triumph in the end. The, the guy gets the girl, the ring gets melted, the monster gets spaced via warlock, etc., for me, embracing, by embracing the spoilers, I get to not only enjoy the period of previewing anticipation by imagining how it will play out, I then also get to uh, enjoy seeing how it does, and I think with a vastly higher overall level of net enjoyment. Your perspective may be affected by watching a lot more movies, so novelty when it comes is desperately needed breath of fresh air. And in this age of sequels, prequels, reboots, rehashed awakenings, and pre-existing properties, so it is for all of us. I just think that life is too short to so vigilantly withhold from oneself that which one is interested in, especially on relatively inconsequential things like movie plots. Who knows how much time is left? Which brings me to the point of listening to podcasts at 140% speed. <laughs> in an oh, episode no. which touched on the subject, albeit more about watching TV shows in this way, you all expressed extreme disgust of the practice in defense 
All I have to say is that podcasts like the Slash Filmcast are like a really great spicy potato chip. You just want to eat up as fast and as much as you can. Because this kind of potato chip doesn't make you fat or give you a heart attack. It's just wonderful from start to finish. And in a world of so much noise and ugliness, being able to indulge in something so positive is a great thing. I'm not to the point where I watch movies or TV shows at accelerated speed, possibly because my TV does not have this feature, but I do watch YouTube this way. This may be a travesty, a valuing of quantity over quality, but I argue it is a matter of quantity and quality. Why not have cake and eat it too, or in this case... 40% 40% more bags of potato chips. <laughs> yeah. I will say a lot of movies are broadcast faster on uh, network TV channels. And it's not great. It's, it really kills movies. So, you know. By this guy's own analogy, <laughs> he's hoisted on his own petard. He, he's, his own analogy is why not have 40% more potato chips? There are lots of very good reasons why you shouldn't have 40% more potato chips. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to the first point. Let's let's not even get to the first point because I think yeah. we've already we've already it's argued about okay. like different strokes for different folks. If you don't want to watch trailers, yeah. you know, I that's was going to tell this guy. I was going to say, you do you, man. Yeah. You do you. You want to you. You spoilers? You do you. But then he made the second point, and now I have to be very <laughs> clear with him and say, you are a monster. And if you're listening to my voice at forty percent faster speed, let me be clear. You are a monster. <laughs> All right? So I wanted you to be very hear that very clearly. You're a monster and you need to stop it. Stop it. Fewer potato chips. Fewer potato chips. Well, you know, remember the last time there were magical potato chips, right? The the no fat potato chips. Uh what did we have to look out for? Anal leakage. Anal leakage. Yeah. <laughs> I like true. that that was perfectly timed together. It's but, true, uh, yeah. Yeah. Listening to podcasts too quickly is the anal leakage of podcast your listening. Ears. Yeah, I, your ears. It'll leak out. I'm just looking out for you, man. I don't want your anus to leak. Let's move on. I want to tell you a story this week of what happened to me, gentlemen. I uh, woke up on Thursday morning. That's your first mistake. Yep, I know. It really, <laughs> you know, it really was, Jeff Kanata. No joke. And uh, I was feeling really off. I was just like, something something is not quite right. Like, my legs hurt, you know? I, I uh, <laughs> felt dizzy moving around. I just like, some, something's not quite right. But I had like two meetings that day. I had uh, like two important meetings I had to get to uh, at around like 11.30 time period at work. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to work, do the meetings, you know, and then call a sick day in for the rest of the day. Go to work. Uh, get to work at like eight o'clock, and uh, it's like ten forty-five rolls around, and I say to my my coworker, "Hey, I was like, hey, uh, I'm probably gonna take the rest of the day off after these meetings, just letting you know." And then, um, uh, like ten minutes later, I said to my coworker, "You know what? Um, I'm not gonna make it. I'm not gonna make it." Um, and yeah. I just took the Uber home. Uh, later that evening, I had a de- uh, fever of over a hundred degrees, um, so I got sick yet again, yet again gentlemen um i i don't know what is happening to me i i think it might be something it could between... be your relaxing work style dave just like <laughs> the waves of relaxing time too relaxed yeah, yeah i think i'm too relaxed, relaxed. That's, that's right I, I you know what here's another thing Devendra. not enough stuff to do i think that's exactly. also uh yeah. <laughs> that's that all, between the between the corporate job and the podcasting i think i just it's just not enough things i have going on in my life uh so anyway i've been basically bedridden i've left the house like 
twice, you know, to get oh, man. groceries. And actually, one of the times I left was to go see this stupid movie, The Predator, that we're going to review today. Um, but uh, but anyway, I would say being slightly feverish and out of your mind is probably a good way to see this movie. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I was like completely incapacitated uh, for several days, and uh, fortunately, I, like I was too too. Uh, in bad shape. I was in such rough shape. I couldn't go into work, uh, but I have a projector that projects onto my ceiling, and I was just lying in metal. <laughs> for just this occasion. For just, for just the occasion of when I literally can't move. <laughs> yeah. I, literally, my entire body is in excruciating pain, uh, and I can only face in one direction, but still want to enjoy the latest uh, titles on video on demand. Uh, and so I binged the entire season five of BoJack Horseman. We're going nice. to probably talk about that in a separate bonus episode, but, um, for now, just know that it's very good, uh, and make some interesting points about the present day Hollywood and how it handles, uh, uh, let's say bad men. Um, so really want to encourage people to watch that show, which is a show I still love. A lot of... Uh, a lot of people questioning, like, oh, I watched the first few episodes and I uh, wasn't a fan. Should I continue watching? Uh, definitely. BoJack Horseman, worth the time. But the the thing I want to talk about today is American Vandal Season 2. Have any of you seen any of American Vandal Season 2? Not yet. No. Um, Jeff, have you? No, I have not. I haven't even seen Season 1. I know oh. you've recommended, you both recommended it very highly. Oh, Jeff. I yeah, not. love it. Okay, so, so I, I will tell you my journey with Season 1. I'll, I'll recap it really quickly, which is that... I started watching American Vandal. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Uh, this should be a five-minute Funny or Die video instead of a four-hour Netflix series. And uh, I stopped watching it. And then everyone, kept, everyone like Devendra kept on me. He's like, you got to go back, check this out. Because uh, I, I thought, when I watched the first five minutes, I was like, I, I have, I've gotten everything I need to get from this show in five minutes. Like, I already know what it's trying to do in five minutes. And I was very, very wrong. Uh, this show is is excellent. Uh, the first season won a Peabody Award, uh, so it is very well regarded. And very prestigious award. Yeah. For, do, you, uh, do you know what the dick drawings? That's right. Yeah. Do you know what the premise of the show is, by the way, Jeff? <laughs> I do. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the first... I, I I I neglected to mention it, but I am stuck in that period that you just referenced of having watched the first five minutes and shutting it off. Uh, and, now, <laughs> yeah. and, and then I, I'm in a longer, much longer, uh, the, the longer valley state of hearing everyone say, you have to watch it, you have to watch it. And, I, and for you, that, that period was short. And for me, it's been much longer. Because yeah. I'm like, really? Really? But I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch it. You, you totally should. So the first season is about these high schoolers uh, who ha- they happen upon this crime of a student who has been accused of drawing dicks on dozens of faculty cars, right, and has been expelled as a result of that. And they, they're trying to get to the bottom of who drew the dicks. So that's kind of like a meme is who drew the dicks. The inciting incident of the second season is like basically a whole separate case. And they cover an event called the brownout. Uh, which is uh, a a bunch of students at a school in the Seattle area uh, being poisoned with laxatives and uh, crapping all over the place. Oh man! So uh, so highbrow humor is what we're talking. Okay, yeah. okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is what I want to say about the show, Jeff. Is the initial crime uh, that starts off both of these seasons 
is extremely dumb and gross and stupid. How do we follow up dicks? You didn't let me finish my sentence. Up. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I was going to say the initial crime that, that starts both these seasons is extremely dumb and silly and stupid. Semicolon. Uh, everything else in the show is yeah. deadly serious. Like, it's more like if what if that silly crime was treated like the plot of serial? Right, that's I, right. I do not doubt it's it. so I, good. I'm, so I'm, good. I'm merely at making fun because I think I think the it's funny to describe a Peabody Award winning show. Yes, it's like okay, we did dicks and we won a Peabody. What can we possibly do next? Um, <laughs> Let's go for I don't the know, shit. Shit, there's shit. Maybe shit. <laughs> but you know, they they only use uh, the the crap as a jumping off point, right? They only use it as a way to explore all these other. Uh, things that they're interested in. specifically this season they talk about things like code switching they talk about things like cyberbullying uh this is uh, aside from searching american vandal has probably the smartest and most accurate depiction of social media usage i've seen on screen mm-hmm. this year you know and uh th- there's so many issues that are addressed in a smart way and on top of that they're completely nailing the style of podcasts like Serial, Making a Murderer, uh, and The Jinx. Uh, this season in particular is heavily inspired by Errol Morris, and the reenactments are spot on. And they have what appears to be dozens of unknown actors whom these uh, uh, showrunners uh, – every episode is directed by Tony Yacenda uh, – they they have dozens of unknown actors who they are getting naturalistic performances out of, despite how ridiculously silly this premise is. Like there's there is the the temptation to like mug for the camera or like play it not super seriously must have been enormous, and they were able to resist that throughout the course of the entire season. Uh, so I think American Vandal season two is awesome. It's a huge achievement, and I'll just say this one last thing about it, which is. Because like they don't want to describe it as a mockumentary because if you compare like Christopher Guest to uh, American Vandal season two or season one, mm-hmm. like Christopher Guest movies have a very kind of s- a familiar cadence to them, right? It's all like uh, every interview with a wacky character feels like you know set up, set up, set up punchline, and they really wanted to avoid that. They didn't want it to be. Like a mockumentary. So if you watch the right. show, the most compelling thing is the mystery. Like you actually mm-hmm. want to know who did these crimes. And uh, because it's not real, the bar for making it interesting is even higher, right? If it was – if for, for a real crime, uh, y- you can forgive – like rough storytelling here and there because you're like, oh, maybe they didn't – maybe they couldn't get access to the uh, library of blah, blah, blah because it's like 5,000 miles away. You know, like they like because it's a real crime, you, I feel like I'm more forgiving of a documentary if the storytelling is not super tight. Uh, in this case, they don't have that excuse, right? They, yeah. they, they're making up everything. So if the story is not great, then it's on them. And I thought they did a phenomenal job. So – that's my argument yeah. for the show, Jeff Kanata. I hope you. You know, one thing. One thing <laughs> we'll I really it. enjoyed about season one too is uh, it's the depiction of high school life. Yes. I think that's what it really is. You know, that idea where yeah, you're in this weird, isolated community, right? And a little thing like who drew the dicks and who got probably expelled. 
which outside of this insular community doesn't really mean much. Uh, but you know, to this community, it's like it's the biggest news. So the most interesting thing that's ever happened there. Not just and the I biggest really news; it has that. all these consequences for yeah. everyone around yeah. them. You know, like uh, one person is expelled, and their family has their hearts broken, and their relationships that they're in are affected. You know, you see how like one action affects a community. Um, so even though it is about dicks and shit. Uh, this is one of the most brilliant shows on television. And it's I a think, metaphor for life. Yeah. yeah, I think it's worth checking out. So that's American Vandal Season 2. Uh, I also wanted to give a shout-out to uh, Dunkirk. Saw it in 70mm uh, this week at the Cinerama. And it was a fantastic experience. Nice. Uh, I, it, it, in my opinion, I still prefer the IMAX experience because there's just more of the image uh, mm-hmm. that you can see in IMAX. But yeah, Cinerama is having their 70mm film festival. I actually met a listener, Josh, from Seattle, Washington, uh, said hi to me in the lobby, uh, said he's a fan of the podcast, so wanted to give a shout-out to Josh. But yeah, uh, Dunkirk, uh, stray observations on Dunkirk. Uh, the uh, editing, so it, it is a massive cinematic achievement. Uh, the the way that he was able to like gather all these extras together and create these stunning tableaus. Like, there's some like all-time greatest shots right in this movie of you see like you know a group of like 10 soldiers walking towards this boat in a distance and it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen uh and also the frame represents their isolation in the midst of Mm -hmm. this horrifying and punishing environment you know the, the the way this movie is shot is gorgeous and compelling and uh it, it continues to remain this like achievement that that rattles me whenever i watch it uh so the, it, it's amazing and if you have a chance to check it on the big screen i'd highly recommend it yeah um the editing still annoys me i know this movie won an oscar for best editing but uh it like cuts between these stories yeah in a way that just completely rips me out of like I, i'm thinking about the editing instead of like being caught up in the emotion of these moments. And so yeah. still bothered It's his it. language, right? It's a very like specific Nolan-esque way of editing. And I think, you know, just watching all his movies, I saw, I forget if I talked about this, but I saw Dark Knight uh, in IMAX a oh, couple weeks ago as well. How was it? And that was, that was an experience, right? First of all, I don't think I ever got to see it on IMAX in the big screen, uh, you know, originally. And just having that experience is great. Um, but also what's interesting to me is like, I can understand that movie better now because we've seen, uh, interstellar and we've seen Dunkirk. And I do think like to a certain degree, like Nolan has been fashioning his own cinematic language and it's, you know, it's not always easy to parse. It's kind of, you know, love it or hate it. But I think what he's doing with editing is really interesting. So like, this is a guy that's basically trying to change, you know, things that have been fundamental to cinema, since uh since like you know the the since silent film you know the language of editing itself is changing or at least he's changing it um it's strange it's weird it feels different uh but watching the dark knight now it's funny how much easier it is to understand and parse like what's actually happening and also it's still worth doing like whenever they do any of these big screen revivals you know get out there go check it out because uh these are rare moments and watching these movies at home will never recapture that it's definitely a bold choice uh what is happening in terms of the editing so 
I'm not going to say it was due to incompetence. You know, it's it was clearly like they're trying to go yeah. for something where they're yeah. cutting between like, okay, here's here's like one dude die like drowning in one story. Now we're going to cut to these other dudes drowning in this other story. Like, don't you see the parallels? Like, that's what's happening with the editing. Uh, and I just I'm just not a fan of of uh, the editing of the movie. Yeah. And uh, finally, it's <laughs> just. I cannot help but think that that opening sequence where they show you the the text on the screen, right? <laughs> so the text on the screen it says the mole one week. Then it says you you could the, be a little more specific. It, yeah. it, it says the the sea one day, the air uh, one hour, right? And so it's showing you three different locations, and then it's yeah. saying the amount of time that is going to be depicted in this film, and. Uh, <laughs> I, I just feel like it is so. It is so frustrating <laughs> that like I know what it's talking about, but even watching it again, I'm like, first of all, it's on screen for literally like five seconds, right? So if you look down to get your popcorn, you you've missed it. And then the fact that he calls one of the locations the mole, when in uh, at least American English, that term has many definitions. <laughs> um, it, it just it's almost unforgivable. Almost unforgivable, but not quite. It's it's a very minor nitpick in what is otherwise one of the greatest achievements of the 21st century in cinema. So, yeah. um, anyway, uh, but I, it, I just, say, I, it just kind of stra- – you know, Devinder, to your point, it just kind of yeah. – that opening, like, text is kind of like Christopher Nolan's march into the beauty of his own drum. Like, he doesn't give a crap about yeah. whether the audience comprehends what he's doing. He's just going to do his own thing, you know? So. It's Christopher Nolan putting on sunglasses and saying, deal with it. Yep. Basically. Yep. And yep. that's pretty much it. I just got uh, Dunkirk on 4K Blu-ray, by the way, and uh, I I don't even know how to watch it. Honestly, like it's a do I do I just put it in and watch it on my TV? But it's not the same. <laughs> like, what's the point, really? <laughs> Mainly yeah. for the sound. I got it for the sound. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. Um, so that's what I've been watching this week. Divinder Harder, what have you been watching this week? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, mainly, though, I want to talk about Forever, the new show on Amazon. Uh, co-created by Alan Yang, who's had a really good run lately between like um, Master of None. He's also a writer on The Good Place. Uh, this is a new show that has a really interesting premise. And I guess, uh, you know, they've been trying really hard to keep what the show is actually about a little bit of a secret. So I'll say, uh, you know, it's, it's a relationship comedy starring Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph as a married couple. They've been married for a long time and it's starting to feel like, you know, what they're going through is just like living life uh, in a repeated way, right? They're just kind of, they've been going out too long. And it's kind of dealing with all those relationship issues. Um, can't really say much more about the show. Uh, it is kind of interesting, though. Like, I'm three episodes in, and it's like, only now do we get the premise, basically. Like, it's 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 kind of ballsy and kind of risky in that way. Uh, it I can't, it It's already out. It's on oh, Amazon it Prime okay. right now. Okay. Yeah, I think it premiered on Friday. Uh, but it's I love these actors um, and Maya Rudolph in particular, like who is fantastic. And I want to see her in more things. She's just she's one of the funniest people alive right now. Fred Armisen, um, you know, I like him. He's not somebody I think that can ever play a normal person. I, I think at this point, like just between everything, uh, this is a show that tries to put, place him as like a uh, mild mannered dentist. And uh, I, I just can never believe him in that. So that's one like knock against it. But, uh, you know, so far, it's a funny show. I think it's really incisive about relationships and kind of how long-term relationships work. And, you know, great to see Maya Rudolph in something, uh, starring in something, honestly. 
so yeah, check it out. Definitely worth a watch. Um, stick with it at least three episodes to really understand what's happening, though. Hey, uh, Devendra, uh, how long have you been married? Just out of curiosity. Um, it's been five years. We actually just okay. celebrated our anniversary, our 50 year anniversary, and uh, we saw Mandy for that. So that oh, that was kind yes. of perfect. Congratulations! Yeah. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, yeah, but j- just just wondering uh, because the couple in Forever has been married for I think 14 years. Oh yeah. Um, well. well my wife and I, we've been together for basically 15 years. Yeah, that's point. right. That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. So it feels like. Yeah. So like there's probably a lot uh, in the show that might have resonated, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, the show is forever uh, and it is available now on Amazon Prime. Uh, and you should check it out if you have a chance. Yeah. And also, uh, by the way, shout out to Jack Ryan, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago before it premiered. Um, but it, it, it is fantastic. Go watch that, too. Awesome. Uh, Jack Ryan, also on Amazon Prime. Uh, note that I work for Amazon Prime, and I cannot comment on any of those shows. Uh, yeah, I can say anything, and Dave uh, just cannot respond. Other, Actually, other than great. I, I do feel okay telling you to watch those shows, though, um, yeah. because uh, you yeah. should check them out. But uh, anyway, uh, glad. You, uh, here's what I'll say. I'm really glad you're enjoying them, Devendra. Uh, that's awesome. Jeff Kanata, you been watching anything? Uh, I have. I have uh, finished Ozark Season 2, and I think uh, you and I are going to talk about it at the end of this episode, right? Yeah, so we'll do a little After Dark about Ozark Season 2 where we can spoil the entire thing. So uh, stay tuned yeah. for that. Uh, I will just say that it is uh, excellent, and if you like Season 1, you're going to love Season 2, like me. Before we move on to our review of The Predator, we got to thank all the people who donated to the podcast this week. Thanks to Linda Mui. Thanks to Joshua Davis from Seattle, Washington. Thanks to Belinda Preno and Jenny Nam uh, for your contributions. Uh, all the money you donate goes to help us to uh, defraying the cost of seeing movies and putting on this show for you. You can always donate by going to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash filmcast. Um, or... Go to SlashFilm.com, use the SlashFilmCast tab, use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, we really appreciate everyone who donates. Of course, do not donate if it in any way causes you problems or uh, affects your livelihood in any way. But uh, if you are able to donate, we really appreciate it. Thanks to all our donors this week. You're awesome. Let's get to our review of The Predator. I'm in acquisitions. I look up and I catch what falls out of the sky. What's on the ship? Tell me about the mission. Did you see anything unusual? It's above our big ring. Do I get a cookie now? <laughs> Look, I get it. Something went down in Mexico. Nobody wants any witnesses. We need to know if you and your man pose a threat. We're rangers. That was from the trailer for The Predator, the new film uh, directed by Shane Black. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. When a young boy accidentally triggers the universe's most lethal hunters return to Earth, only a ragtag crew of ex-soldiers and a disgruntled science teacher can prevent the end of the human race. So I think it's fair to say that we're all fans of Shane Black here, right? I mean, yeah, um, yeah. we've appreciated his uh, films, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, Iron Man 3 is Iron awesome. Iron Man 3, The Nice Guys. 
Um, and, and talking just about Shane Black's filmography here, obviously there were unfortunate circumstances surrounding the filming of The Predator uh, that you know Shane Black has apologized for. Olivia Munn put herself out there and should be praised for uh, what she did in order to bring attention yeah. to this important issue. So let's just make it's more like clear. the aftermath that was also super annoying too, yeah. because people weren't really supporting her in that. But yeah. uh, slowly, slowly, the support came in. Yeah. So uh, Shane Black did a bad thing, took responsibility. Uh, Olivia Munn should be praised for taking a stand against movie studios hiring sex offenders in their movies, which. Uh, it's unfortunate that that needs to even be done, but we are grateful to her for doing that. Th- this movie kind of is released under this cloud of attention of this issue that's uh, not great, not a great mm-hmm. look for the movie, especially given that the movie itself is called The Predator. Uh, but given all that, looking at the film uh, and looking at Shane Black's filmography, can we say that this is a film that was worthy of his talents? Jeff Canada, what do you think? No, no. (laughs) What even is this movie? What what is this movie? It doesn't what specifically what is Thomas Jane doing in this movie? He's just he just wants his kids, man. Uh, No, that's a that's an Arrested Development reference. Anyway, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's it it does have a very good cast, right? You know, you got Keegan Michael Key in there. You got Trevante Rhodes. You got uh, all these awesome actors. Which is exactly uh, what you want for a Predator movie, by the way. You want a ragtag group of people you actually care about and actually would like, you know, watching, fighting aliens and stuff. Well, the, yeah. the thing that's the thing about Predator, right, is the 87 Predator is mm-hmm. the idea is these guys are the most badass of the badasses, right? They ain't got time to bleed. They're they're They are the supreme badasses of all time. And they encounter something that's more badass than them. Right. Simple. Very, very simple premise. They are. What if you took the guys who can handle anything and find something that they can't handle? That's right. that's a very simple premise. What is the, even the premise of this movie? It's, it is so, <laughs> so convoluted and weird. And I mean, I loved the fact that Shane Black put a little kid adult relationship into Iron Man 3. I didn't think – I thought that kind of came out of nowhere, yeah. and it really worked. It was Even though great. it's the thing he does again and again and again. Like that exactly. is a thing for him, but it works in that movie. Yeah, in that movie, it's great. And you have a, a really wonderful relationship because uh, Robert Downey Jr. is magic. And you know, you ha- it, it really humanizes him, and, and it's, a, it's a strange take, but it totally works. This time, Jacob Tremblay, who's clearly an excellent young actor – it, it is shoehorned. It's weird. The whole movie feels like this callback to the eighties in all the worst ways. <laughs> it like it, it, it yeah. More predator two than predator, I guess. Yeah. It fetishizes killing and murder in a way that sort of has fallen out of fashion, you know, like killing is super cool and, and funny, you know, it's funny to murder people. Um, and I feel like that's this anachronistic thing that maybe worked in the 80s when you had Schwarzenegger and Stallone racking up body counts in movies. But it just – I think we're in a different time and it just plays oddly when people make jokes about shooting someone dead f- for no reason. Uh, the humor all feels very, very strange. It, 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 the, the logic of the Predators is odd. 
I want to. We should probably just get to spoilers as soon as we can because there's a lot to talk about specifically. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. this movie is straight up bad. It is a not a good movie. Divinder Hardware, take us through it. I will say I really like the first half of this movie until it starts to devolve into like a mess. And I think you can really tell. Um, yeah, I've heard the stories about reshoots and the studio like kind of wanting to change things up. Uh, this movie feels like something the studio you know hacked up to make it more consumable or something. And I think there are traces of good ideas, um, especially in terms of how it handles some of the predators. There's some really cool myth building here. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was Shane Black second guessing himself or the studio not really wanting to go with that full vision. I don't know what it is, but yeah, the second half of this movie is a complete mess. Yeah. Feels kind of lazy. Really. This is a movie where you want all the damn set pieces and they really aren't there. And then it gets to a point where things are like, the editing feels so bad. Like we talk about, you know, Dunkirk's choppy editing, but at least I feel like every cut in that movie is purposeful. You know why it's there. Whereas this one, people change locations in reasons you don't know, like um, uh, just a lot of things. Uh, people get new weapons all of a sudden yeah. for no reason. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, I know exactly like, what just, you're talking about. <laughs> it becomes like Saturday morning cartoon in a way. It really reminds me of like G.I. Joe, like when I used to watch G.I. Joe as a kid. Um, and that just feels like bad editing. So this is certainly Shane Black's worst directed movie. And it's a shame because there's a lot of potential here. I love the cast. I actually think Olivia Munn is doing fantastic work here, too. I agree. Uh, because, yeah, typically I feel like when they cast a really attractive woman in a scientist role, they play it for laughs. And they really like they don't really give that character much to do. Whereas here, she is kind of uh, she's the MVP of this movie. Yeah. Alongside um, Sterling K. Brown, who's just like awesome and everything i didn't really expect him to i i thought he was going to be like a part of this team but it's a little different uh he's somebody who knows exactly what movies he's in and he just really gets that tone down uh trevante yeah, Rhodes his character yeah. makes no damn sense his character doesn't make any sense because it clearly feels like oh you rewrote like two characters into this one or something um but yeah beyond that like i love the group i love the guys i love thomas jane and what he's doing really uh, yeah Ugh. Well, it's more like I like, first of all, I like Thomas Jane in general, so I'll watch anything he does. Uh, but I, you know, they try to build up this relationship with him and Keegan Michael Key's character. I think there's a really poignant shot towards the end with them that's really well done. It's just that there's so much chopped up in terms of what this movie was, maybe at one point, that it doesn't feel like, you know, there's much connective tissue there. I, I could just watch the, a movie of these guys dicking around. I think that would be more interesting than trying to shoehorn in, you know, a big, weird predator plot that the studio wanted so here are the three crimes of the predator uh that i will outline and then we can dive into the spoilers o overall I, I i agree with davindra i think you know the first half of this movie i'm so like okay you know i heard this movie was a catastrophe but i'm watching it and uh it's at least not boring it's it's not completely horrible yeah uh but then yeah the third the third act really goes off the rails i still think it's completely fine i don't think it's like there's there's ah. other movies like right. let's say fantastic four or justice league that i think yeah. clearly clearly the the studio tampering in in my opinion was far worse on those films than with this movie like that's that is my opinion you might have a different opinion uh but like from my perception i watch fantastic four and i'm like that th there's so much that has clearly been changed about this film yeah, um, yeah and and that's there's so much that's been changed about the predator as well let's be clear but i just think it's like slightly less obvious but here here are the crimes of the predator number one one of the things that made the first predator great 
you know, in addition to John McTiernan's awesome directing, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was one of his defining roles, right? And it, it, that movie has etched its way into popular culture with lines like, get to the choppa and so on. And uh, you need some, like, you want someone hyper charismatic. Uh, hey, 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 Dave, who do I have for you? Boyd Holbrook. Here's the thing. I actually like Boyd Holbrook, but like yeah. the internet seems to enjoy taking a huge shit on that guy all the time. I don't know why, yep. Uh, yep. but I'm a fan. I'm a fan. But even me, being a fan of Boyd Holbrook, <laughs> I do not think he equals the charisma of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator 1, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that is um, – that that's a problem for this movie, in my opinion. Like I, I just don't. You don't have one of those like uh, indelible performances and presences that's going to anchor this film. Uh, I, man, and, I really wish The Rock would take roles that would like you know kind of dirty up his clean image a little. Right. Maybe. I like, think the the dirtiest thing he's done is the Fast and Furious movies, and even then he became the good guy. At remember when he did Doom though? You know. Yeah. Anyway. This would this I agree like this would have been a better I would have rather seen the rock in this than in skyscraper. Uh yeah. but yeah, so that's one of the issues of this movie. Another issue with this movie is uh that there is some uh Shane Black does a great job at commenting on and deconstructing the genres in which he's making mm-hmm. films. And there is this line towards the beginning of how oh, these you know, when I when I watch predator when i was a kid i was like oh my gosh this thing the creature effects of this thing stan winston uh this thing looks terrifying i'm scared of of this thing right i can it's it's plausible to me how this thing can kill all these extremely trained military men uh and i find this this creature scary and the fact that it's called the predator makes complete sense to me it's only when i got older uh and started thinking through the implications of what was happening that I came to the conclusion that the characters in this film itself came to, which is like, this thing is not really, should not really be called a predator. A predator kills because <laughs> it has to. This guy is yeah. killing for sport. He's like, he's, this is like one of those people, like a, like a tech bro uh, or a stock market dude that goes to Africa to shoot, you know, rhinoceri in a reserve or something like that. You know, like. Um, yeah, but this movie is so proud of itself that it made that. That came to that conclusion. It will not get off that. It is like okay, we get it. Yeah, it. it I found it to be cloying and grating. I disagree. That it constantly I, I, was was making those kinds of observations. I wish. I wish. Twice, it, I wish it had made more of those yeah. observations. I, I wish it had been like a complete deconstruction of the form instead of just like right, here's right. a few nods towards it. Um, so uh, my my issue is, and and certainly if you look at what this movie was supposed to be. ScreenRant.com has done like this great deconstruction of all the stuff that was taken out. The movie was originally supposed to be much more bonkers and sane than it ended up being. And uh, I'm disappointed that that vision never reached the big screen. Hashtag release the Shane Black cut. Um, <laughs> but uh, finally, I just think this movie's action is bad. Uh, it, a lot of it is shot at night, mm-hmm. so you can't tell what's happening. Some of the CG is terrible. I think what, when you watch it at home, it, w- it will it look like actively terrible CG. Like it will look like you can't believe this was in a major studio release that this movie uh, has this level of visual effects. My guess is a lot of that is because of time. My guess is because they did a lot of reshoots. They restructured the entire film. There's a ton of stuff in the trailers that never made it into the final. And so I think they just they were up against the wall and they had to. 
do release this movie without polishing the CG to the extent it should have been. Uh, and as a result, there is not a single memorable action sequence in this film, in my opinion. So um, those are my issues with this movie. I don't think it's very good. I don't think you should go to see it in a movie theater. I don't think you should pay to see it at all. I think maybe yeah. when this comes on HBO or Showtime or Netflix uh, or Amazon Prime, catch it then. Um, and, that, and by the way, that is the way I feel like I grew up watching movies right, like this. Right. So that that feels appropriate. Although I would have really loved to see the original Predator in the theaters. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. Let's get the spoilers for The Predator starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be... Food. All right, Jeff, you seem to have a lot of problems with this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got a lot of problems with this. I don't even know where to start. Uh, I'm going to start with Thomas Jane, who evidently ha- has Tourette's because Tourette's is still hilarious thing that we can uh, make fun luck. of. Yeah. But the only – as far as I can tell, the only reason that Thomas Jane has Tourette's in this movie is to get Olivia Munn to say, eat my pussy. That's that's the only thing that literally the it's completely dropped his his disorder right. yeah. as it is is completely it, dropped. The second like, half of the film he does not have Tourette's at all. So I feel like right. pretty really large oversight old, on the film. There is part. no plot point. There is no moment. There is no reason for him to have it other than that one hacky joke sequence to yeah. get Olivia Munn to say that phrase, and it felt gross. Well, this movie felt- commits uh, two two crimes when it comes to the differently abled Jeff. Uh, one is Tom Jane has Tourette's only for laughs. And the other is being autistic apparently gives you superpowers. Uh, as, which it, as it does. I thought no actual <laughs> manifestation of autism. It's like, he's just smart. And that's, well, they do just tell the audience he has autism over and over again. It's, it's really kind of insulting. It's very they, bad. They, they show it in the first scene. Like I will say to the movie's credit. Oh, oh, whole... you, oh, Devendra, you mean the first scene, uh, when, yeah. uh, the fire alarm goes off and he likes, is freaking out because it's too loud. But then later on in the film, when there's gunfire everywhere and people are dying, he's completely fine. Totally fine. It's totally yeah. fine with him at no, that point. No but issues there. I, uh, also, he straight up murders someone, that little boy. <laughs> we watch him murder a person for throwing a rock at him, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's he doesn't do it. He doesn't the do it. The, the doesn't mask does. Well, but he certainly does He's not ser- uh, respond to it in a, <laughs> in a good way, I guess. Uh, okay, a, a number of other things. I mean, the, the list is long, and uh, uh, I mean, this movie is okay. Is you're, just... you're saying Sterling K. Brown's character made no sense, right? Yeah. So, so tell me why he makes no sense. He, uh, <laughs> where to start? He's a cartoon. He's a two-dimensional cartoon of a person. I loved his performance. I would yes. agree with Avenger there. Very delicious. Like he's chewing it, chewing the scenery. Well, but, also like, chewing things. Yes, in the movie. Yeah, he chews. <laughs> literally chews the scenery. I mean, he chews. <laughs> And his and his scenery all yep. the time. Uh, he makes comments about uh, this mystery as if he knows all this stuff. His whole organization doesn't make any sense. They've built this like every every decision that that organization has made <laughs> is the stupidest decision they could possibly have made at any given time. Like we're gonna display all of the weapons in a in a display case for some reason. Listen, what what would you do with alien technology, Jeff? Just put it in a freezer, like put it in a storage room? No, yeah. it's never yeah. been seen on the Jeff, Jeff, put it in a case. Jeff, you you are building a top secret underground bunker, right? Right, right. You're building a top secret. It's like five hundred feet underground. 
Um, you also separately have top secret alien technology. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. What, what are you gonna yep. do? Hide that light under a bushel? No. You gotta you gotta yeah. display it for all the visitors that are coming into your top secret underground bunker. Yeah, get yeah. the government money. Pre- especially, yeah. espe- this is especially a good idea because in the event that a predator comes to life uh, and you is mean able the to predator just predator that you have displayed on your table, breathing and, uh, and that, you, that you have made no preparations to restrain. Yeah, right. Right. Or, was it? Well, he was restrained by like cloth straps or something. Like, get get some get some metal, guys. Like, lock lock, lock that thing down. Like Hannibal Lecter is restrained more than that predator was. Literally, yeah. literally, so, literally a, right? Any time, any time in a movie that anyone is breathing on a table and is <laughs> sedated, they're waking up. That, that's right. That's yeah. right. So, especially if you have this predator who you you have a uh, done a piss poor a, a shit job of restraining on this table. Uh, if that predator were to come to life, you definitely want them to be able to reappropriate all their gear and wreak havoc on everyone, right? right. So why not have it on the table right next to them? Yeah, yeah. that's Just... what we call Chekhov's predator. <laughs> <laughs> you so, know what actually is is the thing that pissed me off the most in this whole movie, and it's a stupid little thing, but it bugs the shit out of me. Uh, the the original predator. The big reveal was when the mask came off, he had that crazy mouth face thing, right? This movie, it just lets that be all the time. And the thing that pisses me off so much is we're constantly getting the predator eye view of his digital readout and all the freaking, you know, Terminator style predator stuff from the first movie. And yet he's never wearing the mask. (laughs) It's just like just his eyes now. That's no, we're getting the, we're getting the remote view through the mask at certain points. Well, we are, but also yeah. when he's not wearing the mask and he's walking around, we see him do stuff that the mask would do, but he's not wearing the mask. I'm like, yeah. that angered me very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jimmy, I just, I, I Jimmy in the chat room says, getting... uh, Jimmy in the chat room says, the predator that you see strapped down to the table. Uh, apparently, he was supposed to come down to Earth to help everyone, right? Yes. Uh, but he literally killed every human that he saw. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he's killing people so that he can give them the the predator killer. It's like stop, <laughs> like, stop pointing guns at me. I'm trying to I'm trying to give you something. And I have to kill you. <laughs> I love the idea of having something called a predator killer. Like it's it's in the yeah. files as the predator killer. It's like us having something called the human killer. You know. <laughs> um, but also another thing that annoys me about this movie is that all of these '80s and '90s reboots. You know, the Jurassic World did this. All of them are like, man, how do we – okay, we got the thing. All right, the thing – well, we saw the thing in the, in, the, in the other movies. How do we improve – how do we one-up what people have already seen? Oh, I know. We genetically enhanced it to make it larger. It's the same thing but bigger. That's bigger, right? That's more. People love more. It's the same stupid shit from Jurassic World where it's like, you like the T-Rex? What about the more than T-Rex that we made? Uh, it's the same stupid shit. It's like we genetically en- enhanced a bigger predator. This one's bigger than the predator, and we see it kill the regular sized predator. So it must be must be scarier than a predator because it's big predator. It's predator plus one. Predator prime. Yeah. Dumb. I, I will say, like the idea of a good predator. Uh, like actually is you know landing and everyone's like uh, trying to kill it. I'm like no no no, I'm trying to help you, you idiots. 
that could have been a fun movie. It seems like that yeah. was the direction they were going. None until, of that like, happens. <laughs> none of that really happens. And they say after the fact, oh, he was trying to help us while also killing a lot of people. So it's very yeah. confusing messaging there. Yes, it is. Like in retrospect, oh wow, that's a cra- that was a crazy plan. And it's really all to set up a sequel where we get a super suit. It's literally just all to set up a sequel, and yeah. it is so lame and so dumb. And it's fun to see Predator original Predator because it's a dude in a suit, and then we get like larger Predator, which is digital, and that's less fun. And no, I, I believe that is also yeah. a dude in a suit, Jeff. I believe it's well, a some really, of it. really large dude in a suit, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah. I a think giant, I think there are definitely scenes where he's all CG. The CG is Oh yeah, bad. no, no, no question. No question, because yeah. some of that CG is pretty rough. But um but yeah, I believe like a lot of it is also done practically. Uh, some of he, it felt like the in-camera stuff where you just change the scale, but even then, like, doesn't quite work. I think the scene – so, so I, you know, I, I already alluded to this article at Screen Rant that kind of breaks down all the stuff that was supposed to happen in the movie. I'd recommend anyone who reads it if they give a crap about this film. Uh, but I, the two biggest things that were cut out of this movie, it seems, are there was a, a moment when uh, the – good guys are supposed to team up with with some predators and like uh the the predators are actually Mm -hmm. good at some moment you know and like that's supposed to be like a cool moment that never happened in the movie and then like there was also like supposed to be predator hybrids like human predator hybrids that were all like freakish that were supposed to be released at at one moment that seemed like a pretty big moment in the movie as well uh so looking through all the changes that were ostensibly made like those are the two big ones that stuck out to me um but yeah, uh, the the moment in this movie that I was like, something is not quite right <laughs> about this, was when out of nowhere, Sterling K. Brown gets a shoulder launcher. Yeah, like, wait a second. <laughs> like, yeah. right. Also, five seconds ago, you were all trying to kill each other. Uh, yeah, this does not work. <laughs> no, but they, yeah, I mean, they, they teamed up because they're like... But there was no. I actually like, liked that moment. I thought that moment worked. I well, thought that there moment was, was no. The, the, the issue is there was no connective tissue there. Yeah. There was no like, hey, yeah. we have now made the decision together that we're not going to kill each other. You know, like there there needed to be to be something That's there. That's a good of, dramatic like, scene. Yeah, yeah. There, there needed to be something of like, hey, let's put our differences aside. And it, it it just really makes you wonder: was there a version of this movie where Sterling K. Brown was on the loony side? You know, like I'm very curious <laughs> about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. It's who knows? Who knows? I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, also, apparently, and I, I couldn't tell because the scene was so poorly lit and shot. Uh, Sterling K. Brown kills himself with a shoulder launcher, I think, is what is what happens. It was really dumb. Yeah, uh, it was like, so I badly e- edited. It's, yeah. a, it's just like you're you just introduced the concept of shoulder launcher to this film. <laughs> and then three minutes later, the character who has a shoulder launcher kills. Him. Like we barely understood that this was <laughs> a, a weapon, B, how it worked. <laughs> and now we're supposed to understand that, see, he killed himself with it? You know, it just, that just didn't, something was wrong. Such a mess. That's not didn't good. A, didn't Predators always have shoulder launchers? Isn't that a Predator thing? They do. In the first movie. But the yeah, way so, he so got like, it was just like, here, by the way, did, you have this thing now. So did, yeah, did he like appropriate it from, like there was never an explanation of how he got it. You know, is, you yeah. Know. Also, is, if, you're, if you're a Predator, if you're the badass r- race of Predators that goes from planet to planet, like killing stuff, and and the cool and the the reason that you kill stuff is because your hat automatically does things despite what you want. Like that that's literally the 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 idea here is that the predators are so badass their hat will attack 
if they feel threatened. Yeah. Like, they're not doing anything. They're not involved in the decision at all. It's their hat that it's decides. Behind it's but that's all. <laughs> it's so dumb. I, my it's question so to dumb. you guys, what movie, what is better, this movie or 2010's Predators by Nimrod Antal? And I've been thinking about that. I actually yeah, that is a good question. I kind of want to rewatch it. I remember having a bit of fun. Like, it felt like a B sci-fi movie. Like, the sort of thing you'd expect from a Predator sequel, you know, in this decade or something. Um, I That movie felt more cohesive than this yeah, one, yeah. at I, least. I, I think you're right about that. Like, the banter and stuff in that movie probably wasn't as good. But uh, I, that movie, for all, of its, for all of its flaws, and it does have many flaws in the storytelling. You know, I think I was reading this article in The Atlantic about the movie Predators. Uh, that was entitled something like six huge plot holes of this movie. You know, like th- there were a lot of problems uh, with that movie in terms of like how, uh, yeah, it's called Suspend Your Disbelief, Six Gaping Holes in Predator's Plotline. You know, that was what the article was called from 2010. Uh, despite that, I still think it was, like you said, Devendra, a more cohesive experience. I think it, like, yeah. it doesn't feel like... I've read people saying like people in this movie, The Predator, are referring to conversations that you, the audience, never saw. Right. Um, I don't. I don't actually recall that happening in the movie when I watched it. Um, But uh, apparently, it happened, and apparently, that's a problem for this movie. So, anything else we want to say about (laughs) The Predator, guys? I did. I did kind of like the score. It did feel like a nice callback to the original, like sweeping score. Um, at times, it just felt like they were just reusing the theme, but I can't. I'm, I'm not as well informed in the scores the, to tell that. Yeah. I, I did not even remember that Alan Silvestri composed a score for the original Predator. And oh yeah. When, I, yeah. when I was listening to this, I was like, "This really. This sounds like Alan Silvestri." You know, that, that mm-hmm. was my reaction when I listened to the score, and I was like, "Oh yeah, it, it's it, you know, it's not written by uh, Alan Silvestri. It's by Henry Jackman, I believe." Um, but it does sound extremely similar in, in a way that feels like a loving homage. So I also thought that the score was was a good thing about this movie. Um, My favorite part was when uh, at the end, when we have the uh, the touching burial of all of the things that are icons of characters that we never met and never mm-hmm. knew and didn't know anything about. You know, the the pack of cigarettes that was, oh, that was Jimmy's. Remember Jimmy, who didn't appear in the movie at all? Oh, yeah. And the uh, the <laughs> this is a hula dancer. Oh, yes. I'll never forget. Other Jimmy. Oh, the second I thought Jimmy. they were uh, – so th- that was not the Loonies stuff that was in the uh... – That was the Loonies stuff, yeah. I thought that was, oh, Loonies. Thought that was his We spent the whole movie. Crew. We but, spent but, the whole but, movie. But, but to your yeah. point, Jeff, I don't know that the movie does a good job of saying, like, why yes. the Tootsie Roll Pop is, like, so significant to the Loonies yeah. characters. You know, like, I, I understood that to be his original crew <laughs> No, no, no. in the beginning of the movie. I mean, who who the heck even knows, Jeff? But my understanding <laughs> was that died. that was, Those like – That's, died. like, his yeah. new crew. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but it was nice of Olivia Munn to keep that uh, aluminum foil dog through the whole action sequence and not get it squished. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was nice for Olivia Munn to uh, be miles away from that spaceship, which is flying far away from her direction, <laughs> only to appear at the last minute to save the day. Um, yeah. That seems like it took a lot of skill. So He's a superhero. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I do think she was great in this movie, but... Um, that was a little insane what happened there at the end. Man, it's so, the first Predator, right? How does Schwarzenegger finally take down the Predator? It's by stripping everything away. 
yeah. right? It's it, it actually there's something there. There's there's some pathos. There's some sense of uh, you know using his brain and figuring it out and going mono imano and and just it's this primal thing. And this movie is so it doesn't approach anything like it doesn't even try for anything like that. There's some the final way that the predator gets taken down is his own arm is used against him. Okay. Mm. It's just it. The movie is so incredible dumb style, man. Just... Incredibles. It's like, hey, the only thing yeah. that can penetrate it is itself. You know, yeah. Incredibles callback. Jeff, it's like, it's Come like on, adamantium. Man. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I did appreciate the Jake Busey casting because it's nice to have a Busey. Uh, you know, continue the line in the Predator franchise. Sure, nice to have a Busey. Nice yeah. to have a Busey. Yeah, Th- there was kind of this subplot in this movie of like. Oh hey, if you don't have weapons, it won't attack you, kind of thing. Right, like right, that. Right. That was never followed up on either. Like there was, there's a lot of little tiny things like that. That that is the good predator plot line. That right. we kind of, yeah. And then there's this, there's this there's, dog that that yeah. like. I was just gonna say that there's so it. much, so much effort put into this dog, and and yet for what? I don't know. I don't even know why. Like, what was the, the what was the payoff with the dog? I don't remember. Like the dog. I guess up it the, delivered the grenade at one point sure. that saved yeah. Olivia Munn. But then, then it shows up again after. Anyway, yeah. yeah, doesn't doesn't make any sense. Okay, I think we've spent enough time trying to figure this out. Uh, movie's not good, and not good. it uh, shows evidence of studio tampering. But it's, I have to say, I didn't think it was like a, a terrible time at the movie. Like if I saw this on on a cable TV one afternoon, yeah. I wouldn't be angry. You know what I mean? This feels like a Netflix movie, basically, like something like that. Yeah, like I'd be angry if I watched. Uh, Justice League. I'd be angry if I watched Fantastic Four. I wouldn't be angry if I watched <laughs> The Predator. You know, sure. I wouldn't feel like that was a one hundred percent waste of my time. It's like it's like an eighty to eighty five percent waste of my time. You know, right? So <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, well, you can find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast dot com. Email us at slashfilmcast gmail dot com. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussed next week, and stay tuned to the After Dark to hear me and Jeff talk about Ozark. In the meantime. Where can we find more of your work on the internet, Devendra Hardwar? Oh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Devendra there. And I write about tech at Engadget.com. Check out my coverage of the new NVIDIA video cards coming up later this week. How about you, Jeff? I'm on Twitter at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I do a video game podcast called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC. You can get emails from me. I, I try to send one or two emails a week. At DaveChen.net slash letters. That's DaveChen.net slash letters. Uh, okay, uh, that's all for today. Next week, I think what we're going to be doing is reviewing Mandy, the new Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah. Uh, and I have heard it is very metal. So I'm looking forward to talking <laughs> about it with you guys. Um, so that's what's coming up for you on the Slash Filmcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Another man is dead. People make choices, Wendy. We don't have to live under the weight of those decisions. At least admit it was good for us. We passed upon the stairs. Spoke it wasn't well. Although I wasn't there. Said I was a spread. We know that Marty Bird launders millions of dollars a year for the Navarro cartel. What we need to know are the details of how he does it. You do realize that you're betting everything on being able to pull this off. Yeah. Came as some surprise. 
Jeff Kanata, let's talk about Ozark season two. Yes, so so good. I don't know if I agree with you about this. I mean, really? I, like, let's talk about overall thoughts. And should we say we're going to spoil Ozark season two? Right? We're going to spoil everything from Ozark season two. Yeah, we can say some general thoughts uh, first, but yeah, we're we're going to talk in details. Yeah. So Ozark season two. Uh, you seem to love it. I, I mean, I'll just say this: I, I got, it. I got through this show in three days, right? Yeah, so, so you must have hated it. Well, I'm just saying, like, it, it, the show had to be doing something right for me to get through it in three days. It's not like there's no way it could be, in my opinion, bad if I got through it in three days. It does many things very well. Uh, I, th- I think the the show is beautiful, like beautifully shot. Um, mm-hmm. Some people find the color palette, which is very cool and bluish, to be oppressive. And some people find the show to be very dark, literally. Like, uh, I, I think Todd Vanderwerf at at, uh, at Vox.com put together an 11-screenshot uh, essay explaining why the show is too dark. Like, it's, it's not lit well. Mm. And... Uh, there are some instances where I actually think he's right, but I also think, you know, not every show needs to be lit the same, you know, like we already have plenty of shows, like most shows are lit in one way, uh, or, or a lot of shows are, are, are lit in, in very similar fashion. And then there's some that are like really extraordinary and, and take very different chances. Um, and I think Ozark's look is very distinct. So, uh, I don't necessarily agree with Todd, but I think he does have a point. There are some shots that are like, whoa, why, like, why is the scene in the hospital, uh, like why are there, why is there only like one tiny light in hospital? Every hospital I've been in has been like flooded with fluorescent. You know what I mean? So like there are some scenes where it's like okay, you're going over the top with the lighting, but uh, overall no problem with the look. I think the problem with season two of Ozark for me, Jeff, is that I just simply don't believe that these characters could have evaded being killed because of all the things that happened. Which characters? The the Marty the and Wendy Bird. Yeah, I just don't think it, huh. it strains credulity too much for me. Uh, really? That he would con- yeah, <laughs> that he would be able to talk his way out of uh, being killed so many times, especially because you see people killed, like so many people die on the show for seemingly much uh, less significant reasons. If that makes sense, then the seems inco- like an odd criticism to me. But but go ahead. I don't think it's odd at all. I think I think the entire sh- the, like part part of the appeal of the show is watching these people try to keep themselves alive, right? And, like that's that's the whole point. And it certainly is not easy for them. It's not easy, and that's the, my, the point I'm making. Is you know, it's like if you're watching, <laughs> if you're watching try, someone trying to keep himself alive in an extremely dangerous situation, uh, and there's like at least like three or four points where I'm like, okay, no, that that would have definitely resulted in his death by now. Um, th- these people defy the odds again and again in ways that I find to be com- like increasingly implausible. You know, like uh, here's an example, just an example. Um, uh, the uh, Kansas City mob, you know, uh, 
giving like is, is apparently the most forgiving mob ever depicted on screen in the history of of television right like uh when initially marty bird pisses them off they don't kill him and then uh he pisses them off again and they blow up his office rather than killing him it just i just don't like and that's that's one out of you know five examples of times when marty bird has pissed people off and i just don't well, he- think he would have been able to talk himself. Like, I, I don't believe it. Well, I don't clear, believe it. Okay, so. clearly the Kansas City mob is going to be season three. Like, that's yes. the, the threat in season Agreed. three is the Kansas City mob. So I don't think he's out of the woods there yet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the the reason that he's not killed originally for them is because of um, um, what's what's his face? The his downstairs basement guy. Um, can't remember his character's name. Yeah. Uh, I mean, having a history with them, I think that's and then also the death of that character getting giving him some sentimental leeway. And and also, you know, I think Marty Bird's ace in the hole throughout and the sort of premise of the entire show is that he's a very valuable thing to these people. He's a very he, he provides value. He launders their money. And so I think I bought at the end that the exploding uh, office is meant to make something very clear. It's a message. It's not an attempted murder. They could murder him anytime they want. They st- they stand to make a lot of money and make a lot of their constituents happy by securing those union jobs. And he in season three is going to be stuck in that place of having promised two different groups, two different things. Right? So yeah. I don't think it's in their interest to kill him. They're in their interest to scare him into getting those, getting that to be a union job. Um, but I, I mean, I take your point. I think that's the fun of any of these kinds of shows, right? This is a genre now where it's sort of a, an every man in a, an extraordinarily illegal situation, uh, trying to, you know, manage, keep all the plates spinning. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, if Marty Bird was a character on the Sopranos, he'd be dead by now. I, I, I firmly believe that. But, uh, let me talk about one thing I liked about the show, and then I want to hear about more of your like more things you liked, and then I you know I'll bring up some other issues I had with it. I think uh, Laura Linney is doing some of the best work of her career here, in my opinion. I think she is so good this season, and the entire season you find out you know backdoor is about her. It's like a backdoor pilot for her ascension, right? It's like this is the story. This is not, actually not the story of Marty Bird. This is the story of his wife and yes. how she uh, comes to terms becomes, with her power and, and rises to power. Becomes Lady Macbeth. Right. <laughs> not, this is, this not even Lady Macbeth, I would argue. Like, um, I would say more powerful than Lady Macbeth. Like, she, she's, like make, she's like forcing Marty into situations he doesn't want. Like, Lady Macbeth well, is like – yeah. She has that wonderful monologue in the final episode yes. of the season where she tells her kids – why she cheated in the very first episode of the first season. And you, it's clear that she's talking about, you know, being stagnant and not feeling, not being the person she wanted to be. And it's clear that she has found that person. She wants to be a mover and a shaker. She loves the power and she likes this life. And I found that to be an extraordinary arc over two seasons. I thought that was beautifully slow played and we see her, you know, sort of embrace it over time, especially over the course of this season. I thought that was one of the strengths of this this season is how strong all of the women are. Uh, Ruth and Wendy and uh, 
the Snell wife, uh, all of them, I think, are the stars. It's really their stories this season. I thought it was extraordinary. Yeah. So, uh, and the question is, when when she makes that call at the end of the season, uh, do you believe it? Right. And I, I actually did. I believe. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I agree. It is a two season arc for that character. That's the one thing, in in my opinion, that this season did extremely well. I think Laura Linney's character. The one thing? So many things. Go ahead. You know, one of the few things. But I think, like, uh, that character is way more interesting than Marty Bird, in my opinion. Marty Bird, I feel like, has changed extremely little in seasons one and two. You know? He is frequently a character uh, to whom things happen. And, in like, he's trying to, like, keep all these plates spinning and do all this stuff. But, like, yeah, I think... Um, I think... His... Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I... I, I... I think that's kind of the point, right? Is that his his uh, his arc over the two seasons, such as it is, is from the the uh, disaffected, uh, emotionally distant uh, brain that can move numbers around and and manage everything and stays cool under pressure and you know is is super stressed but doesn't crack to being to finding that emotion and and uh wendy even says that to marty in the final episode is like i she says i w- begged for you to be more emotional and i love you for that for finding it but now, i was wrong i don't want you to be that guy and he completely cracks after the killing of the preacher and I, so i found that to be again a, a wonderful setup for season three because he at the end realizes he is married to someone far more vicious than he and uh, someone who is now reveling in in the viciousness and the power that she has she has found and he you know he straight up turns to his daughter and says if you don't if you want to emancipate i won't stop you he he says to wendy i agree we are we shouldn't be parents we are horrible people like that's i think that's the place he's gotten to is He'd been lying to himself the whole time saying, hey, I'm just doing what I need to to survive and now has realized it's far worse than that, that they are criminals and they enjoy it to a certain extent. At least his wife does mm-hmm. and his son is starting to like that. That cracking of the family is his arc, I think, realizing that. No, that's a fair point. Fair point. So tell me more about what you uh, thought was really well done this season, Jeff. Well, I love shows like this. I love the spinning of the plates. I love how they're going to get out of this one. I, I mean, I'm I'm into these kinds of shows, and I think this is a particularly well plotted, well acted one of these kinds of shows. I mean, I think the performances across the board are in, 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 wonderful. Uh, Julia Garner as Ruth is a particular standout. She's just great. Uh, Ruth Langmore, the Langmore family, I find to be fascinating. The introduction of the father and his sort of chaotic, you know, trajectory that he throws everybody onto and, and sort of his, you know, he's the wild card that causes a lot of things to go poorly and how that all played out. I thought I was fascinated by, um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think seeing the women take center stage and it being sort of Lady Macbeth's all the way down. You know, it's, it's just Lady Macbeth on Lady Macbeth. Um, and the Snells and how the, it humanized them. Uh, I, I just, I found the twists and turns of the season to be just as fun as the twists and turns of the first. I describe, you know, I think the show can be described as um, 
Breaking Bad and Justified had a baby. Right. And two, those are two of my favorite shows of all time. So I think it lives up to that title. I think it, it's right there alongside those shows. And I also think the first season, I, I often described it as what if you had Breaking Bad, but instead of lying to everybody, the guy just told the truth all the time. Like yeah. in the first season, Marty just tells people the truth which is like so interesting and fun this season. Not really this season. It's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a web of lies that is constructed over and over and over again. Uh, but all of the all of the stuff from season one still lingers, right? We still have the preacher and that I was, my heartstrings were tugged on, on that uh, over and over and over again. Hold that, that whole subplot I thought was really powerful and I felt for that little baby. Obviously I have a little baby at home, so maybe that affected me even more, but uh, there's so much in this season that felt uh, edge of my seat and thrilling and what was going to happen and who was going to live and who was going to die. And I think there are big consequences The the show to its credit, I think pulls the trigger on something that other shows would have probably slow played over even more seasons, which is the FBI, uh, um, guy who's been on their trail like he felt like a guy who was going to be around season after season after season and he his subplot is is handled in a weird way he's a character i found creepy and gross the whole time and even he is humanized by the end which i thought was to this show's credit my wife turned to me at one point and went everybody i hate in this show i end up feeling for (laughs) yeah Uh, i don't know I, i really liked the ride of ozark season two and they do that wonderful thing where it all feels like all you have to do is just get on the plane and you can have it all. And of course, no, um, <laughs> you know, I love that. I love, I love that dramatic device of, of, uh, um, you had it. All you had to do is walk out the door and something stopped it. So Jeff, you, you react with like complete shock that I seem to have reservations about this, this show. Uh, are, are you familiar with the critical reception to Ozark? Like, I'm, I'm curious. You know, it has a 66 on Metacritic. No, so I, you know, I don't pay attention to Metacritic. <laughs> right. That, I mean, that's but that's that's fine. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just saying, saying like it doesn't it doesn't com, com, comport with my right right experience. That's, that's okay. That's fair enough. I mean, I will say uh, I watch the show. I really enjoy it. But I also like feel bad about myself afterwards, and I don't think I feel bad about myself in like the way that the show wants me to. Do you know? Really? Because I feel like, um, first of all, the show is so ridiculously over the top, in my opinion. Um, I think everyone in the show is so evil, and I don't have the experience your wife had at all, uh, or you had, of like, oh, everyone in the show, I end up feeling for them. I don't feel for like I, I, I don't think. Uh, virtually no character in the show am I a fan of. Maybe um, uh, Ruth Langmore. Maybe her, uh, played by Julie Garner. But even then, that's like kind of on the bubble. Uh, because everyone is so unpleasant and has done so many terrible things that uh, attempts by the show to redeem them are uh, unsuccessful for me. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think the the show is just so over the top. And then like the idea of the pastor like taking them hostage and stuff the idea that he would snap and do that i it's just uh, it's it's ridiculous i think it's ridiculous really? i just uh, yeah you know you, you keep saying really wife... jeff jeff spoiler alert anytime you say the question really the answer is going to be yes um you know well, i like... don't mean to annoy you by it i'm certainly <laughs> I, i'm i'm expressing my surprise fair in, enough. in a way that i felt to be uh <laughs> clear to all fair enough um, fair enough but yeah i mean but just... i'm not doing it to annoy you uh, i i 
am surprised that you would think that a man whose wife has, he knows has been murdered, but everybody else says left him and his child, uh, his business, which had been booming before he met these people has been destroyed utterly. And then his child taken from him. He feels absolutely powerless. He knows only that these people are at the heart of it. The, he interpreted a, a warning from Wendy as a, as a threat that then came to pass. His child is not with him. I, I, I could totally understand him doing something crazy and uh, feeling like, yeah, I want to murder these people. I mean, if someone came and took my child away and murdered my wife, I, and, and threw me into that kind of chaos, I don't know what I would do. I, I don't find that over the top. I found that to be pretty believable, actually. All right. No, that's a fair, that's a fair point. You know, I don't, I don't know how I can dispute, like, I'm trying to make a better argument other than I didn't find it believable. Um, and, uh, it's a challenge, you know, uh, I think that simply, I, I, I think what struck me is how opposite the polls were, uh, of what you see of that character. And I think like just showing someone do something really, really nice and then showing them doing something really, really evil, which is very reductive, what I'm saying. Like, the show do- shows you more than that. But, like... Which character are you talking about uh, right The now? pastor character, right? Ah. It's like, in season one, he's, like, very put together and very kind. And then uh, in season two, he's, like, uh, you know, he, he threatens the lives of our protagonists. And uh, There's it, a progression there, right? I mean, I, yeah. I stepped through it. I stepped through it just now. That, that His life has been utterly... He is a casualty of these people's greed. And he knows it. And no one else believes him. I mean, that's a. I found that to be a very compelling place to be in. He, he, you know, he has. He just brushed up against it and tried to do and had. You know, he had even admitted in that monologue in in his episode. Uh, he had the the what he considers to be the sin of pride, where he felt like he could take something that he knew deep down was wrong and make something good out of it. And what happened was he brushed up against these people for even a moment and his life was utterly destroyed. And I found that to be – like I don't like him. Like I, as a character, I don't, I don't like the guy. I think he makes all the wrong choices. But I sympathize with him. Uh, OK. So I'll, I'll drop this point. I think you've made a really great argument, Jeff. Uh, I, I will also say to the show's credit that that character subplot did lead to one of the most haunting scenes I've ever seen on television in all the time that I've been watching it, uh, which is at, at the end of season one, when um, the uh, one episode, you see him with his pregnant wife. And the next episode, he comes home, and there's just a baby on the table. Yeah. And the baby's alive, and it's crying, and it's, it's completely clean, right? Yeah. It doesn't, there's no sign of trauma whatsoever. Um, and that is one of the most upsetting scenes I've ever seen. Right, like that—that that yeah. is an image that is forever etched in my memory. Of wow, that's upsetting, you know. Um, and then, and then this season, you have Darlene just offhandedly say, yes, "I delivered, I that, delivered that baby." That's oh. right. Yeah. Oh. So I thought that was—I thought that was very good. You know, I wanted to bring up one other thing about my argument earlier about like I, I felt it was implausible that Marty Bird is still alive. I think because of how last season ended. Uh, and the killing of uh, Dell, right, played by Isai Morales, mm-hmm. like that's like oh my gosh, TV show. Like when I, when that happened, I was like, 
because uh, I don't know what your experience was, but I thought, oh, well, uh, they're going to uh, wrap this up with this deal and Marty Bird's done it again. Hooray. And then the Darlene just straight up executes Isai Morales. Yeah. Uh, Ordell. And I'm just, that is, that, you know, props to you, show, for, for doing a shocking thing. But when the, a show does something like that, Jeff, the show has dug itself into a massive, massive hole. It, 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 is, it, it, is, it is incumbent on the show to prove to me that these characters uh, are going to stay alive. And Don't you think that this entire season is reckoning with that moment? Uh, not the entire season, but certainly the first parts of it. And I just don't believe that Marty Bird passed the um, the burden of proof that he – like what Marty Bird should have done is, hey, um, FYI, the Snells executed Dell. You know, like – but he didn't. He, he basically lied to – uh, the his employers, right? And mm-hmm. I I gotta imagine um, that that treachery would be rewarded with with uh, severe punishment. Uh, of course, there is that you know scene where uh, Peter Mullen murders his own henchman, uh, and you know I, I get that that was like a repayment, but I just don't believe that that would be sufficient. In my, like I, based on I everything will, I've seen from mob stories and the, and then the show doesn't only is not content. To leave it at that, Jeff. It doesn't just say, okay, well, that problem solved and Marty Bird's free and clear. It layers on subsequent things that Marty Bird does to piss off his employers. Like, you know, that's why I found it so unbelievable. You know, So I just wanted to well, hopefully clarify that a little bit. I do agree. that That is the one moment of the season that I found to be a little hard to swallow is this notion that killing their henchmen somehow – created equilibrium uh from killing like this like major dude right like that they that he would that jacob snell would know that he would he would just sort of know that 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 would make it okay with them and then it does make it okay with like if i'm the if i'm the 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 um cartel i don't care that you killed your dude like you still you still killed one of my biggest dudes like, <laughs> yeah you know? it's like, like kill I, the dude plus five million dollars you know what i mean like or something like yeah. that I mean, I thought it was effective because he was willing to do that instead of giving them a percentage. Like, it's a very small percentage that that Marty and Wendy proposed to them. And so he's willing to kill his own. I found that to be illustrative of the character in a really cool way of right. like, you know, life is less important to this guy than $5 million or a percentage of his profits. So I thought that was kind of cool. But I also, I agree with you that it was an odd, like... He knows the cartel is going to be like, oh, oh, you killed your own guy. Okay, we're cool. You know, it's like right. Maybe not. Maybe like double check with them first before you plunge the knife in. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, okay, let's talk about a couple of other subplots. First of all, I want to say Janet uh, Janet McTeer, who plays the lawyer, is amazing in this season. Awesome. Uh, plays so Helen awesome. Pierce. So cold blooded. I'm like, when I watch this show, I'm like, I, I wish I had seen Helen Pierce in more things. I'm sorry, uh, Janet McTeer in more things. You know, like I yeah. wish I had seen that actor because she is so good. Uh, she's apparently in Jessica Jones. I have not seen that show. Uh, but uh, I, I think she, she sends a chill down my spine every time I see that character. Yeah. There's no way she's not the head of the cartel, right? She is the cartel. <laughs> I, I believe that that character is, she keeps saying my employer, my employer. I'm like, no, it's you, baby. It's I don't you. know if I agree with that. <laughs> um, Rachel, played by Jordana Spiro. This is a major subplot this season, right? The idea that Rachel stole from Marty and that they would reconcile and that Marty kind of has a thing for her and would be willing to kind of go to bat for her and make sacrifices for her. Did you believe that on any level? 
I think there again an- another thing that I will agree with you is that Marty a, a seemingly inherent characteristic of who Marty is is that he has this like complete and utter character uh evaluation of people like he he inherently trusts Ruth and inherently trusts Rachel right. completely with no res- like he knows that they're not going to betray him even though uh, all of the, all those characters every single character he trusts betrays him right literally but everyone i find right? what i find so cool about that and i agree <laughs> that perhaps from one perspective it can strain credulity but what i find so cool about that is that is what ultimately wins them over like he puts faith in people he puts trust in people he sees something in them that they don't see in themselves and that ultimately is inspiring to them. And I find that to be a really cool notion, a, a really cool theme in, in this character is that he has decided that Ruth is a good person. And she doesn't even know that, right? But she is constantly tugged to Marty's side because of his trust in her. And I think that's something – I don't need to get off too esoteric here, but I think that's something that happens in real life. I think you – you know, when – when people actually are given responsibility and given trust, they live up to it. Uh, and I think that's a really beautiful thing to see in a TV show like this because you don't really see it very often. Uh, one other subplot let's talk about is uh, Ruth's father. Now, this this is, in my opinion, what captures what I really don't like about this show, which is, A, that character is cartoonishly evil, in my opinion, right? Just... Uh, he's like, you, you know, you're not gonna like, you, we're gonna steal because we like stealing. Like, there's no other reason. It's not like even like they need the money. It's just like, you're a criminal because, you know, you're gonna stay a criminal because uh, you're of criminal blood and I'm gonna make your, you know, it's just, it, it just, he's such a sleazeball and like so terrible and has zero redeeming qualities. And you just know that the show is setting them up for a big confrontation, uh, which it takes 10 episodes to get to. Uh, I just think it's um, emblematic of like the worst aspects of the show. That character, in my mm. opinion. What do you think? Well, I disagree. Uh, I mean, I, I again, I see uh, the elements that they're playing on, which is he's not just saying, "Oh, your your blood is your blood." He's he sees this foreign foreigner to their land, right to their area. This rich, clean cut a hole, in his opinion come in and offer his daughter a life that he could never offer her. And she's tempted by it. She's tempted to be something she's, you know, with her book learning and her smarts and all this, you know, it, he hates the idea that she would be tainted by what he considers to be a reprehensible, you know, lifestyle, uh, you know, persona in the form of the birds. And I, so I, I get that, right? I, I, can, I can see truth in that. It's not so much that he's like, we're criminals and we always do crimes. It's this is the life we lead. This is the kind of people we are. You're not different. You're not different than us just because this guy comes in here and offers you things and gives you a job that, you know, he, he's taking advantage of you. He doesn't ever actually, I mean, he says to this to her over the course of the series, he doesn't actually give you any power doesn't actually give you any responsibility and in fact when the the permits are being examined he asks her not to actually be the one in charge he puts the stooge in place 
that at all is is evidence to her father that this isn't real. Don't expect you know this isn't your lottery ticket that you won out of this life. You are this is the life we lead. This is who we are. And don't think that you're better than me because you're not, right? I get that. I, I think that's a legitimate character. Um, and yeah, he he does a lot of horrible things, but also there's this beautiful moment in the middle where he actually is a pretty decent dad to her in his own horrible, effed up way when she's being uh, brutalized by the cartel, he actually helps. He actually comforts her. He actually uh, tells her not to break and not to say anything and don't be afraid because you haven't done anything wrong. You, you know, it's like there's this beautiful moment between the two of them. And he actually you know, does something that heartens her. So again, I, yes, I feel like he's a you know a pretty one-sided character in the terms of being a, a shitbag, but even he has a moment where it's like oh, there's there's something in he does care for his kids in a weird way in his own perverse way. I don't know. Again, I, this all this stuff worked for me, and I I'm sad yeah. it didn't work for you. It, it's cool. I, I mean, I'm I'm in, very much enjoying hearing you. Like I think you arguing for why it worked is basically your review of why the show is good, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and even though it didn't work for me, like it, it, I enjoy hearing you talk about why it worked for you because it's like, okay, you know, I, I like alternate perspectives, even if they're not mine. And even if I'm, even if I find them unconvincing, you know? Uh, but yeah, so many, like, many things like that, like the show is, in my opinion, oppressive. Um, it's filled with characters that are, almost completely unlikable and have very few redeeming qualities. He has that one moment in a 10-hour season, you know, where he shows himself to be a human being, uh, like you said, and I think there's just many characters who are like that. Um, and, and yet, despite all that, I'm going to keep watching the show. You know? Um, <laughs> in three, three days. Power through in three days. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm going to watch season three when it happens uh, because the performances are so strong, because yeah. the cinematography is so strong, uh, I mean, I, I'm showing up for Laura Linney and Janet McTeer, really. You know, that's who I'm showing up for. Um, and as long as, like, the show keeps giving them interesting things to do, I'm going to keep watching. I also thought Peter Mullen was great in this season, too. And it, it was a very – again, it's so uh, – I'm, He's like, getting, so like, irritated, though, just, like, talking about it. Like, it's so over the top – you know, this whole like, oh, we were young once and everything was so beautiful. And look, this woman who was like such a firecracker, um, now she's going to murder me on our walk. Uh, and look at the tragic like, you know, bookends of this love story. Uh, it, it's just so – everything is just turned up to 11. And when everything is turned up to 11, to quote Syndrome, nothing is. Um, so the show frustrates me. But I still – don't know how to quit it, you know? Fair enough. Yeah. I love yeah. it. And I, I, I'm into it, man. I, I can't wait for season three. I think, I think this stands alongside my favorite shows in this genre. It's, you know, Justified, Breaking Bad, The Shield, uh, Sopranos, all these sort of like relatable bad guy, you know, in a, in, in over his head. How is it, how's it going to shake out? You know, I, I think it's, this this show kind of shortcuts Breaking Bad in a lot of ways. It like jumps into like season three or four of Breaking Bad, and and what if you know his entire family was on board from the beginning? You know that that would be a it's a really compelling concept. Is like this entire family is. I, I thought the the arcs with the kids were interesting. I, don't know, I 
I'm super into it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, to, to be clear, like, I think what you just said is madness. You know, like, I don't think this, this has many of the appearances of a show like Breaking Bad or The Sopranos. I just don't think it is, like, the, because of the characters, uh, I just don't think it comes close to that show. I, I, I think um, the characters in a show like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos are much more well-rounded, in my opinion, like, much more believable from my perspective. Um, but... Yeah. You know, another thing I love, and I, I, I almost forgot to mention, uh, I love the little iconography at the very beginning of yeah, the episode. Yeah, no, I love it. It's great. It's great. It's so fun. It's because, so yeah, it's because, like, uh, keep an eye out for this. Keep an eye out for this stuff. And it's, like, it's subtle enough that it doesn't really spoil anything. Yeah, it's not a spoiler at all. It's more like, uh, you know, Easter eggs. Like, it's planting little Easter eggs. It's it's rad. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, it's one of the more effective. Uh, opening credits sequence of of a show so yeah. um really appreciate that uh ming lu in the chat room says i hate the show and hate myself for continuing to watch it that's not quite as strong as my or that's that's a bit stronger than my opinion like i don't hate the show but yeah it, it, i do watch it and i do feel bad like i do feel like oh man you know I'm like should I, by that. what'd you say I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I, I just said I'm, I'm baffled by that. But go ahead. yeah, I'm just like I'm just like, should I be spending my time watching this? Shit? You know, I feel like Breaking Bad became about more than you know, Mr. Chips becomes Scarface, and I think this show is aspiring to do that. This show is aspiring to become this kind of epic, this you know, sprawling epic about families and and escaping your blood and and so on but the way it does it is so ham-fisted um that it never really achieves that in my opinion like i i i'm in it more for the plot machinations than about what it has to say about family do you know what i mean but Mm -hmm. what do you what do you think like as we wrap up here you know um do do the when you when you when you come away from the show like what do you think the show's trying to say you know what what do you think the show is what's the show's message what what is your takeaway from it Boy, that's a tough question to answer. I, I definitely – it definitely resonates on a family level. I mean my wife and I watch it together. We both really dig it and we often comment to one another, oh, please don't ever do anything like that because I don't think I could do that. Or you know, it, it, Fun, silly stuff but it's like I, I don't think I could you know, cover up a murder for you, honey. I'm sorry or w- whatever it takes. Uh, so there's – I don't know. And, and how the kids – like they're trying to be good parents in this weird lie and there are these one, fun scenes in this season where they're like sitting around the dinner table trying to have this normal life when everyone knows that it's just bonkers to even attempt that. you know. And she's like, I want to go out you know, go out. And they're like, no, you can't do that. It's what? What are you talking about? We, we're doing way worse stuff. It, so there's a, there's a weird fun comment on – family and the lies we tell ourselves that I find to be interesting. I also feel like, I mean, this is a, uh, almost a side thing, but this idea of money laundering as a focus for a show is so pertinent to what's going on in the world right now. And I find it interesting. And I think, I think what we're learning is that there is, you know, this entire other economy that's happened (laughs) throughout the world that is dark and mysterious and criminal uh, and so I don't know. I like I like that aspect of it because it makes me feel like I'm sort of, you know, involved in what's happening, <laughs> it, just in a in a brain space of what's actually going on in the world. Um, 
but you know, it remains to be seen what the takeaways are. I, I, I think it's, it's, it speaks to power. It speaks to what we're capable of and what we want. And, um, but I, I, you know, it's not, I don't know. It's, it's, it, I, it is pulpy fun for sure. I'm not trying to say that it is anything greater than, than that. But, but wouldn't you say that breaking bad, I would not call, I would not ever call breaking bad pulpy fun. You know, I would say breaking bad is more than some of its parts. Ditto the Sopranos. I would definitely not call The Sopranos pulpy fun. Uh, I certainly uh, – I don't want to be misunderstood. I, I didn't mean to say this show is as good as Breaking Bad or oh, The okay. Sopranos. Okay, I just sorry. think it stands alongside them as uh, – of the genre of excellent examples that are fun to watch. Um, I, I think Breaking Bad is superior to the show in every conceivable way. I see. But, I see. But that doesn't mean – that doesn't mean that the show isn't uh, – you know, it can't stand alongside it and be – it's not like, oh, well, I watched Breaking Bad, so watching Ozark is useless. You know, like it doesn't invalidate watching Ozark for me. I feel like it can stand alongside those and be just as interesting and fun to go through and spend time with. Well, Jeff, uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about Ozark Season 2, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, and uh, stay tuned, listeners, because we're probably going to do one of these for like BoJack Horseman as well. So. Yes, an equally dark show <laughs> in its well, own way. <laughs> I, I, I will say this one thing, um, that it, 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 there is a subplot this season that's very similar to the subplot of uh, this father-daughter thing. And I think BoJack Horseman handles it much better. And it's an, <laughs> this animated show set in this like crazy, wackadoo world. Anyway, yeah. you'll, you'll know when you see it. I'm being extremely vague about it. But um, maybe we can, we can come back at that point and, and talk about that subplot. So. I'm excited. I adore that show. All right. Thanks for listening. See you later.